This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division, the messaging around Referendum 88 um, Mm -hmm. from honestly from both sides was Mm -hmm. not super accurate Mm -hmm. because a lot of the things that I-1000 did, um, it added clarity, but it didn't change fundamental things. It it, uh, it did it for a couple things, but not most stuff. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, Go to alaskaair.com. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. Today on Crossing Division Tacoma's talk show, we are talking with Clifford Armstrong about race, gender, public jobs, and contracts. And this is particularly on point because after our election last week, it does not look like Initiative 1000 is going to pass, and so we will continue to be a state that has gotten rid of our official affirmative action laws. Um, Clifford, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell me what you do with the city of Tacoma. Yeah, so I am the workforce development program manager for the city of Tacoma. Um, I am I basically manage the small business enterprise program now called the Equity and Contracting Program, um, the Local Employment and and Apprenticeship Training Program, and the Tacoma Training and Employment Program. Um, So I basically kind of oversee all contracting equity um, programs that the city has, whether it relates to subcontractors or the workforce. Uh, And this is kind of out of left field for me to ask you this, but are there a lot of contracts that the city oversees? Yes. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, let me see. We had you. I don't know the 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 quant the quantity that the entire city does, but I say the of stuff that comes through my office, it's probably around a hundred a year. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because of things in the past that we would oversee were um, large construction contracts. Um, but going forward on the the contracting equity piece, we're going to be doing all contracts irrespective of size for the most okay. part. Um, but the city does um, a lot of contracts. So it must a be lot like of contracts, a lot of money, millions of dollars. Oh yes, yeah, hundreds of millions. Oh, hundreds of millions. Okay, so this is a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and some of it is because we own some of it, and some mm-hmm. of it is passed through, or you know, where we do stuff um, with, with state funds, state and, funds, yeah, and maybe even federal money too. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Okay. So l- let me set this up a little bit. Um, we've talked previously about um, I one thousand, and I was going to do a podcast on the initiatives, and I did a podcast on uh, the two initiatives with April Sims and Justin. Layton, and you contacted me after that saying, well, that was okay, but I didn't think you went deep enough. And so we started talking about, well, you know, what should we be talking about? And one of the things that you said that really uh, intrigued me was you said, you know, I-200, and for those of you listening who are not aware, I-200 was an initiative back in, I think it was 1998, that got rid of the affirmative action program in the state of Washington that allowed for some... Um, I'll say extra points when you're doing an evaluation for either hiring people into public jobs or issuing public contracts. And I don't know how it worked, frankly, in admissions to uh, public colleges and universities. But it allowed for uh, race and gender to be taken into consideration. Uh, So your comment was, I-200 did not 
ban affirmative action, but it placed barriers to having race and gender conscious programs or requirements. And the barriers are not impossible for government to overcome, and we're doing so now in Tacoma. And that intrigued me because I thought, well, I've always wondered about that. You know, even if you don't have a specific affirmative action program, can you try to do some things to increase the diversity of your workforce, increase the, um, let's say, the variety of people competing for your contracts, increase the inclusiveness of your colleges and your universities? Because... You know, we don't live in the most diverse state, but we are in a fairly diverse state. These are all publicly funded things, these jobs, contracts, and, and uh, college admissions. Uh, and they need to be fully available to all of the citizens of the state. And I think everything works better when you have everyone who is in the state participating and benefiting from these programs. Yeah, um, we definitely can do some things. I personally would say it's better if we have uh, a more diverse firm base or um, employee base or anything like that at your different sort of businesses or public agencies. You generally, um, the way I would say it is, you want them to be representative of your of, of the, your community, of your community, yeah, or what your relevant market area is in is kind of how our disparity study would frame it. So what would you do now after, you know, I-1000 looks like it did not move forward? What are some things that a public entity can do? Um, and let's keep it to contracting first since that's your area of expertise. What can a, an entity do to try to um, get at the issue of whether you have a lot of diversity of firms and people competing for contracts? Yeah, so it depends on how um, how strict you want to be. Mm -hmm. So if you want to stay in the aspirational realm, which is to say um, we're going to put out a solicitation for a contract and um, we want to have 3% of this contract go to women-owned businesses and 4% go to minority-owned businesses and maybe another 5% go to small businesses. Mm -hmm. um, but it's aspirational, which means if the contractors don't do it, it's, oh, okay. well, it's fine. Yeah. You, know? um, you don't need to really do anything mm -hmm. for aspirational stuff for the most part. Um, so you're putting it out there to your contractors saying, we'd like to hit these targets. Right. And so they may have some incentive, but they don't have any requirement. Correct. And what happens a lot, and the contracting community themselves will tell you, because it's, it's not a shame thing for them. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of local contractors who really do want to have more diversity that they do in subcontracting and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the way that we solicit things at the city for larger projects. It's a low-bid environment. Mm -hmm. So in their strict terms, if the money doesn't make sense on the job, it's it could be the difference between winning a job or not if you choose to use folks who happen to be more expensive for whatever that reason may be. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll have a lot of people who will just go with who they know when they know what the bids are, when they know what the quotes will come back as so they can try to bid as competitively as possible. 
And then the second thing they'll tell you, and it's, I mean, it's if it's the diversity manager at the company or the owner of the company or whatever, you'll hear from everybody. They're saying if you want something to happen, put it in the contract and make it mandatory mm-hmm. because they also want it to be a level playing field on their end yeah. to say, if we're going to do this, we want to make sure everybody has mm-hmm. to do it mm-hmm. um, when, when we put in our bids. Yeah. I- I mean, many years ago, I, I worked um, with a public entity that did a lot of contracting, and and yeah, it was a challenge for uh, the contractors to find uh, the subcontractors they wanted to use who also could bring some minority women-owned business um, credit with them. And uh, and yeah, I think that they did feel like um, we we'd like to, but... You know, we also need to get this contract. Right, right. And so, um, you know, that's 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 on the contractor side, and, and I think it's really important to always note that um, there are things you can do on the the way that you enforce contracts on a prime contractor if it's construction, but there's also things that you could do internally with your own staff to make sure that when they do solicitations, they do proactive outreach and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and that also doesn't necessarily need to have the formal procedures that we went through at the city mm-hmm. to be able to do hard requirements. Um, but that's still something you don't see out of a whole lot of public agencies. Yeah. So, and this makes sense to me. What you're saying is, you know, you could have a real motivated, let's say, uh, a city or or an office that says, you know, our goal this year is to, is to increase the number of, um, you know, diversity players in our contracts by 20%. So we're going to make sure we do outreach to different communities, explain our contracting, provide maybe even assistance on answering questions and helping people so that we can get some firms who could do the work but who may not ever be bidding to get them to try to bid so that we've got more people to consider. Right. So that would be perfectly allowed at all times. Pretty much. Okay. So – Tell me what the city's doing to try to up the game a little bit. Yeah, so um, I guess I could say what we're doing, and then maybe later we can talk about how we got to what we're doing. Yeah, it's the- or if you want to start with how we got there, that's fine too. Whatever yeah. works for you. Okay. Um, so the how how we got to be able to do what we're doing, um, it's a it's a long process. You mentioned you know I two hundred, which mm-hmm. came in ninety eight. I think I voted on ninety seven. Started in ninety eight. Um, at that time, the city of Tacoma did kind of have a race and gender conscious program at that point for contracting. It was more kind of a pass through from the federal hub program, um, but then we went with a race and a gender neutral solution um, at that point because of I-200, still called it HUB, and then that became the Small Business Enterprise Program, which we've had for about 20-something years, 20 years now. Um, And some of the people who were around at that time um, to make the program are still at the city. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've had a conversation with them, and, you know, they'll tell you that that they um, tried to make that program still be able to, um, I'd say, affect, uh, get get more contracting opportunities for women and minority-owned businesses, even though they couldn't explicitly target women and minority-owned businesses, which is just to say that the Small Business Enterprise Program is race and gender neutral. It is strictly monetary-based mm-hmm. in terms of your gross receipts mm-hmm. over a certain time frame and where your business is located or where your personal address is. Um, and so we, we had that program since that point. Um, and one of the things that we've learned about I-200 since then is that even um, – well, it really put the the first thing that you have to do is you have to prove that you have 
an ill or evil if you you know yeah that, that if you want to get into all the legal terms or whatever but um you have to prove that there's a problem okay and um if you want to have a race or gender conscious program whether it's in hiring whether it's in contracting okay. so your first issue is um if we want to consider race and gender then we have to show that we have a problem in that we're probably not um hiring um people or contracting with people who look like our community. Right. And how do you do that? Right. So you have to use a third-party vendor because your data, it just from a legal perspective, if you do it yourself, then it's just open and assume that you have inherent bias. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you, you have to hire a third-party contractor for the most part. Um, and they'll come in and do your study, and um, they'll look at your data for what's called your relevant market area, which, um, you know, is one of the things that I, I feel like I have to um, talk about a lot with, with the programs that I operate is that um, they they put requirements on contract for the city and to come public utilities because they're under they're a part of the city. Okay. And when people think of programs for the city, they think of just Tacoma, but Tacoma Public Utilities has services and infrastructure in 88 zip codes in I think five or six counties. Okay. So so that's actually a broader public it's a market much then. Broader market. Okay. And then that's um that's just where that we provide services, but we still have to get businesses um on our contracts from even further out than that because sometimes even in our own market, we don't have people who provide services in that market. Okay. Um, an easy example that I go to a lot, I think, is rail. We get mm -hmm. a lot of rail contractors who aren't from anywhere around here. Mm -hmm. um, so it's um, the the disparity study folks will basically um, – and, and we did – we contracted – we put out an RFP. That was like a national thing. And there are, I would say, some experts in the field. Um, who work on these studies nationally? Um, so our contractor was Griffin and Strong from Atlanta. And this and these are, is the the term of art is disparity study? Correct. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what you'll generally hear it referred to as as a disparity study. Okay. Um, and again, it's it's specifically looking at the disparity, and it's always within a domain. So for us, for it was, the domain was contracting. So it'd be the do, the disparity between who you contract with and the availability of women and minority owned businesses. In your market, okay, um, and kind of what the discrepancy is between those between what you do and who's out there. So we con Tacoma contracted with uh, a national firm out of Atlanta. Yep. And how long did it take them to do the study? A year. Okay, so that's quite an investment of time. Correct. And about how much money did it cost? About three hundred thousand. Okay, so it's a significant investment of money and time. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, the cost varies between not just how large your city is, but really how well you manage your data. Mm -hmm. That's the big thing that costs money is when the contractor has to get your contracts from different departments or different, in our case, business units um, sometimes. And then they have to reclassify the data to make it all one to one and then do all that sort of stuff. Um, that's where that's where a lot of the hit is. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so yeah, so they they take the data, or they they do their study. They have a qualitative and a quantitative part to it. So they do interviews. They they did all that, um, and basically, when they um, when they published our study, they found um, that we had in the city of Tacoma um, statistically significant disparities in every intersection of race and gender. 
uh, and work category. And so I'll say a little bit like work categories are yeah. basically the things that we contract for. Okay. And at, at the highest level, we put those into construction, architecture and engineering, which architecture and engineering is one is one category, um, goods and services. So mm-hmm. we have four of those. So they found statistically significant disparities in every intersection of race and gender in every work category, um, with the exception of, and I think it's uh, Hispanic Americans as um, subcontractors in construction and um, non-minority women as uh, subcontractors, I think, also in construction. That's interesting. Correct. So in those areas, we had, uh, in the subcontracting, we had pretty good representation for Hispanics and women. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's 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 one of those things that's relative to the availability. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would look at um, and I'll just go down the list because I have sure. it in front of me, and, and I'll just limit it to construction. Okay. And this is the availability, right? So this is going to say um, we're looking at every contractor who's available to be contracted with in construction in our relevant market area and then breaking it down by percentages, right? So of everybody who's available in construction, 2.81% of those businesses are African-American. Mm-hmm. 2.97% are Asian-American. 4.69% are Hispanic-American. 2.03% are Native American. Uh, and 3.13% are women, which is say that all women and Minorities combined make up fifteen point six three percent of the construction market. And so that is is what is available for us. Correct. And what were we hitting? Yeah. And so to to compare um, of the total. So what did I just say? I said fifteen. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Fifteen. Fi- total. 15 let's just say fifteen and a half percent in construction. We actually only contracted six point four five five percent of our spend. Okay. So there. less than half. Less than half. Yeah. And so, like, if you went down, you know, I said African-Americans make up 2.81 percent of the market. Mm -hmm. We only contracted with them 0.57 percent in construction. Wow. That's really low. It's very low. Um, In architecture and engineering, Asian-Americans make up 12.86 percent of the market. And we contracted with them 0.8 percent in that intersection. Right. So it's not great. In almost any of them, um, and then where there is not statistically significant, not a statistically significant difference, um, you would still look at the availability and say, we pro- other than maybe the Asian Americans in architecture and engineering, you would say we need to have more businesses owned by women and minorities mm-hmm. in general. But that's kind of a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? It is. It's like, you know, if the work is there— and the contracts are coming, you will get more contractors saying, hey, that's a really good line of work. I want to open my own business. Right, right. And so it is It is definitely a chicken and egg thing. And the the important piece as well, um, and I could talk about the, the legal risk maybe a little bit later, We um, this all this stuff, the programming that we're doing, um, it has to be specifically tied to our study, mm-hmm. which means that um, we can't over-prescribe a solution. Um so I guess I, I'll, I'll run it back real quick and just say, so mm-hmm. you have to do your study. Yeah. After you do your study, the thing that you have to do is you have to try a race and gender neutral solution. So is that the point that we're at now or have we already tried that? Well, we consider that to be our SBE program, right? Okay. We've had a race and gender neutral solution that we tried to um, to do for 
like I said, a little bit over 20 years. So we've always wanted to get proportionate representation into our contracts. Correct. And then even since our study was published at the end or in August of last year, um, we've still been doing our SBE program since then. Um, and um, so, yeah, so we feel like we've done that, but it's in the context of trying a race and gender neutral solution that we have, the disparity that we have. Okay. Already. So trying the neutral program, we've got the disparity of, you know, we've got about a, a 15.5% availability in our market area. For we're construction. Not, for construction. Yeah. And we're not even hitting that. Yeah. And in some areas, we're particularly underutilizing, like, for example, black construction or Asian American um, architecture. Correct. We're really underutilizing the, the firms in our area. Correct. So now what? Yeah. So now we're in a place where we can do a what's called like a narrowly tailored program. What does that look like? Yeah. And so narrowly tailored means that we can prescribe solutions, but the prescriptions need to not overcompensate for our disparity. Okay. So in a perfect world, like I think we kind of said at the beginning, you'd, you'd want to have an exact match between the availability and who we're contracting with. Mm-hmm. Um, an overly pres- prescribed solution would make it so that um, if our availability of African-American construction workers is 2.81%, we came back next year and it was 90%. Right. That would be a problem. Right. Or take your women-owned uh, right. business. If suddenly next year every contract went to a women-owned firm, right. you would say, this is not exactly a well-adjusted solution. Correct. Correct. And it's a very um, it's a very legally funky um Issue, which mm-hmm. again, like the case law has kind of shown, and, the, and it's not even having to do necessarily with Washington State and I-200, but just in general, is that um, – and, and it really gets to the heart of some kind of issues of systemic racism mm-hmm. over time – is that you can't do a program like this until you have the data that shows that you can or you have an issue. Yeah. But once you have that data, you're then legally obligated to do something about it. That makes sense. Now you know. Now you know. Now you know you're really underhitting your market area. So you're underutilizing firms. Right. And what do you do about that? Right. And from um again from like the the legal risk perspective which I, I think like really has to be hammered home with with some folks who would ordinarily might be a little bit of a detractor in this mm-hmm. area. It's that um, if you're uh, an African-American-owned firm in our community, um, and I've heard from a lot of them, so this yeah. isn't a hypothetical, really. This is this is reality. This is reality. Yeah. Um, and it's not just them, but, you know, they'll say, you know, we haven't been getting contracts at the city because of discrimination, because of X, Y, Z, or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, and you'd have a hard time to prove that now, wouldn't it, you? In the past, yes. In the past, if you were that person making that case and you were like, I'm going to sue the city because of discrimination. Right. You didn't have the data, maybe. You did not have the data. And even if a court asked for it, we wouldn't have been able to produce it in Mm -hmm. a way that anyone would have been able to tell that, really. But now the city has the data. Correct. So now if a black contractor comes forward and says, I'm being discriminated against, I've been bidding on all these contracts. Yes. And And that's why you need to act once yeah. you have that information. And and I think that could be one of the one of the things and we'll talk more about this but you know so the public entity has to contract with a third party firm. Yep. It could take time and it can take money. Yep. And now once you've done it, which I think is definitely the right thing to do, now you've got data where you 
have to take action because to not take action means you're opening yourself up to a potential liability for allowing a discriminatory pattern to continue. Correct. Correct. And, um, and, and that's why I think it's, it's really critical to, to have this, to have the information to be able to do something about it. Um, cause you know, I say like as a citizen, right. It's, um, and, and as I say, like, obviously I work at the city, um, and I'd say of the people who work at this amazing people, people mm-hmm. work hard. They, they go, you know, like everybody else, they go to work every day. They try to do their best. Um, but when it comes to like systemic racism and that sort of thing, it's really easy to go to work and do your job, check in, check out, Absolutely. and to have practices that actually are discriminatory. And then when you have, when we're in the situation that we're in right now, it makes it, it gives us the ability to really do some some transformational things that can have those same people go to work every day and do the same thing, but in a way that, you know, eats away at a little bit of the systemic racism that is, it's not just here because like mm-hmm. we've, um, I've seen a lot of disparity studies the state of Washington's came out earlier this year, and they have some issues. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's is uh, they're they're gonna have to do some stuff as well. Um, but almost everywhere they're done, there's there there's a finding of statistically significant disparities. Mm-hmm. And, and but I mean, like you know, as sad as that is, that that's our country, right? It's better to know. Yeah, it's better to know and have the data, and then you can start addressing it. Yeah. So what's the city gonna do now that it knows it has these disparities? Yeah. So. Um, Myself and a very interdepartmental group um, worked on some policy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it passed on the 5th, and it goes into effect on the January 1st. Okay, and so when you say it passed on the 5th, you brought it to the Tacoma City Council? Council yes. Okay. Yeah, second reading was November 5th. And is it like a resolution, or is it an it ordinance? Is, it's or? an ordinance change to our previous small business enterprise code. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's gone to them. They have approved it. Correct. Or, and, and then now what happens? Yeah. So it goes into effect on the 1st of January, and there's a lot of things. There's a lot of pieces to it. Mm-hmm. So um, the first one I would say is that we're no longer going to be self-certifying our own um, small business enterprises. at the Effective at the end of next year, actually, because we want to give people a little bit of grace period. But – we're going to be using the state of Washington's um, roster from the Office of Minority and Women Business Enterprises. Okay. Um, the reason is that dependent. I know they're mo- they're asking for like a million dollars extra in their budget next year. Is it dependent on them getting it, or do they have the capacity to do that work now? Yeah. Well, they already charge us to manage that. Okay. Actually. Yeah, they charge different um, cities specifically um, for the management of that program. So it's actually like one of the only things I think that I, I kind of manage the budget for my program and stuff. Mm-hmm. So like we have a charge that came through from the state, from that particular office for the, you know, the basically running that program. And it's, it's one of the only ones it is. I think it, it might be the only one that I get that I was like, Oh, I'm paying the state for this, you know, out of city money. It's, it's just a weird experience, but, uh-huh. um, but yeah, no, they, I, they're going to need, they're going to need more um, staff, they're going to need more resources, and it's not just because we're going to be using them. It's because they, again, have their own study that showed they have their own issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we can hope other jurisdictions start, you know, being more active in this area. Mm-hmm. And the more that are, they'll likely do what we're going to be doing and using the state list. Because from a small business perspective, um, our our 
program in the past asked people to recertify annually. Um, they couldn't use our certification for anything else anywhere in the oh, state. Okay. Um, and so by using the state list, you know, it's the same um, monetary requirements for the most part. We can mm-hmm. parse the state list so we actually keep the same geographic integrity. So we're not saying that everybody who's on the state list will count for us. We're saying everybody who's on the state list who lives in, your area. in the same area that okay. our previous SBE program um, considered. And so this is – so if I had a small business and I wanted to get certified as a woman-owned business, I would go to the state. Yeah. Or, I think it used to be OMWBE. I it still is. So the same. Um, and get that certification. And then how does that – how does that work then for the city of Tacoma contracting? What's the either – Built into your contracts, or what's the advantage to me that I that I have now that I didn't have before? Yeah. So um, when we make and and I have to stress that we do a lot of different types of procurement, mm-hmm. not just for construct, not just for construction, but for all those other work categories I talked about. And then even within those different categories, there's different types of solicitation processes. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have different ways that we're going to increase equity in each of those types of solicitation processes. Okay. The the easiest example that most people can recognize is the the low bid um, construction bid. Mm-hmm. That's that's what a lot of people are familiar with. So like to use that example, we will be able to put requirements on those projects that a certain monetary value has to go to women-owned businesses or minority-owned. And we'll likely just for integrity purposes have to lump them together for the mm-hmm. most part. Sure. So it'll be like, and you'll see a lot of the time the term um, either like MWBE, mm-hmm. which is what you often see in Seattle, they say Wimby. Like they have the oh, MW moved it around. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. So we'll have those requirements on a project. And so as a small business person who's, and the, the area is wider than what I'm about to say, but just mm-hmm. for your case, um, you know, if you lived in Tacoma or your business is in Tacoma um, and you're on the roster, then and you're in these you perform a scope of work because we when you register on the state list, you have to do your your um, your industry codes. So when I look at a con- construction bid that's going out, we're going to sort it by the scopes of work in it. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to look for every scope of work. Are there at least three contractors on the state list in this scope of work okay. that are Wimby's or yeah. WBEs? And so every if every contract requires this, is it like going to be a percentage of the work? It will be um, not necessarily a work, but the spend. Okay. Yes. An amount. Yeah. And so that should even the playing field for your large construction companies to come in and say, okay, now we can invest in having relationships with these small businesses that may or may not be the least expensive um, because we're all going to be competing on equal terms to have these types of businesses involved in the contracts. Right. And so we'll have um, – it'll be it'll be fair and equal in that everybody will need to comply. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do say that noting that we do still have waivers. So, you know, if for some reason there's an emergency or, um, you know, when we do our initial check to make sure those three – there's at least three vendors in that scope and then by the time the bid comes – there's only one and mm-hmm. that one can't do it or something, yeah. you know, we can waive it. So we still do have that discretion. Um, but in general, as a rule, there has to be compliance with it. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll expect to see a lot more outreach in that way. Mm-hmm. And then we'll also provide um, incentives for contractors to 
go into formal mentorship programs with um, using um, Washdot has a mentorship program, Sound Transit has a mentorship program, and um, I'll shout out like the minority um, and the minority business development agency, which is housed at the city of Tacoma, um, because they now run the the mentor protege program for Washdot and Sound Transit, I think, and I think I, Linda told me that they have a. They just got a contract from somebody else to do it for them. So oh, good. Um, we might similarly follow suit and have them implement it. Um, you know, we're not we don't really have the capacity internally to to manage that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, we want to make sure that, like I said uh, a while ago, you know, it's like you have internal things, you have the external requirements, but you also want to make it an environment that's just positive and makes people want to work together. And it's not just a hard requirement. Yeah. Um, that sort of piece. So we're trying to trying to be really creative and um, intentional about that. Okay. Let's take a short break. And then uh, when we come back, we're going to, I'm going to do some pushback on you okay. with the type of things you might be hearing from people. Yeah. And then also we can talk a little bit about, about hiring outside of the, just the contracting. Okay. okay? This is Alaska Airlines Mileage Plan MVP, Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 sister podcast, Nerd Farmer. Hope and I are setting off on a new adventure. We're moving to the Middle East for the next few years and exploring a new culture. Don't worry, don't worry. The Nerd Farmer podcast isn't going anywhere. But do you know what is coming with us? My Alaska Airlines Mileage Plan. Here's what's cool. Alaska has more than 15 global partners, which allows me to earn and use Alaska miles even when I'm not flying Alaska. So if I leave SeaTac and fly direct to Dubai on Emirates on an eligible fare, I'm going to earn Alaska miles on that flight. That means whenever I fly home, I'm going to be racking up some insane miles that I can use to book future travel. If you have an international vacation plan, check out the list of Alaska airline partners like Japan Airlines, British Airways, Cathay Pacific, Qantas, and a whole lot more. Enter your Alaska Airlines mileage plan number when you book with Alaska Global Partners and watch those miles add up toward elite status on your next trip. My thanks to Alaska Airlines for their continued support of Channel 253. Learn more at alaskaair.com backslash global partners. Okay, we're back on Crossing Division. Hey, uh, before we get back into all of these really interesting contracting and hiring questions, if you are not a member of Channel 253, it is a great deal, $4 a month, less than a coffee at Starbucks or any of our local coffee places, and you get access to all of this quality podcasting. And now, Clifford, back to – I'm going to give you some hard questions. Okay. Okay. So I'll put on my other hat of I'm an angry citizen. Okay. So does this mean we won't be using the best contractors if people are getting awarded uh, parts of contracts because they're women or minority-owned businesses? Maybe they're not the best. Yeah. That's uh, one I've heard before. I'm sure <laughs> I'll hear again. Um, I think the the immediate – thing you have to really challenge people with is what do you mean by best? Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, because it best often is a lot more subjective than you think it is. Um, and so we really have to be intentional, whether it's contracting or hiring or whatever it is, to define exactly what qualified is. Mm-hmm. And then after you have um, – after you do that – when you say this is what qualified is and you write your definition of qualified to be sufficient to get the job done, whatever the job is, um, 
And then you have you put out a bid, you put out a solicitation, you have a pool of candidates, whether they're people or vendors or whatever, who apply for it. Um, anybody who passes that threshold is good enough to do the job, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. then from there, um, that's when you can start to add additional layers of things, whether it be race or gender or whether it be local in some cases mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. Um, that's kind of the immediate place that I go for that mm-hmm. that, that sort of question um, because oftentimes, um, you know, when people say best, I think there's there's kind of a it, – it's an easy go-to mm-hmm. if you don't question it where people kind of think you know what they mean or you, or whatever. But it, it often has a lot of non, um, I'd say, kind of – it's it's often like a racialized undertone to it. Yeah, um, I think it. I I think it's kind of like a soft racial bias type yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, and I and I'll say I think usually when people say best, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit in hiring too. What usually comes out is it means someone who looks like me. Yeah, yeah, and and one of my I mean she's still my coworker, but she used to. Um, work a lot more closely with me, worked in construction um, for 20 plus years, mm-hmm. right? And um, obviously, and I just feel like, you know, I'm personally very sensitive to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, hearing some of her stories is just very interesting. I mean, and not in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so yeah, so I think like it's always, you always have to, I think, challenge people to kind of have more of a perspective on, on that piece, um, especially because like you can get what you want for cheaper, right? And, and that's the other piece is like people will say best and it's like, well, you know, um, do you need an NBA coach to coach your youth sports team? Right. You know what I mean? Like you don't always necessarily need sometimes whatever that subjective best might be, like that might not actually be what you need to get the job done. And we have public funds on top of it. Yeah. Which, you know, those, a lot of times you have the same people who, who might throw that at you might be the same folks who, um, you know, are very kind of big tax hawks and and don't want, and want to make sure you're, you're spending public funds very well. Well, and that was going to be my, my second pushback is, is this going to make the cost of our city contracts go up? It very well may. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, we've been very upfront about and we're, as, you know, I could speak for myself, but I, I, I've had conversations with other city staff. We're very thankful for our current council um, who also understand that. Mm-hmm. And it's something that they value um, because sometimes um, – Depending, and it, it really depends on the scope of on the scope of work. It depends on how well trained our contractors are. So one of the things we're doing, besides having the requirements, is we're also increasing our outreach and training for people to know how to properly bid, mm-hmm. how to properly, you know, go through like the whole bonding procedure, do all that sort of stuff. So um, it very well may have an increased cost, mm-hmm. but I think it's something that our council knows. Um, We've been very upfront about that the entire time. Um, and even staff of other departments who own the the projects are aware of that. And it's something that people, you know, we all live here, right? And yeah. we, all, we all live here. We all work here. We want our city to be more equitable. And sometimes, you know, again, I, I think I said it kind of earlier, like, like systemic racism can be easy to keep going along with if you keep throwing additional justifications for keeping things yeah. as they are. Well, and I can see, too, you know, as we talked about the chicken and egg, one of the hopes would be 
we develop a broader field of minority women-owned businesses, and that increases competition. And then, you know, maybe the price will go down, maybe it won't go down. But, you know, that is not a bad thing either for the quality of work or the um, community. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're we always kind of look at like more bottom lines in in public service, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we want to not just have a street built, but we want to have a street built by people who live here, who will pay their taxes here, who will raise their families here. Yes. And so that's really important. And, you know, when we can have these sort of additional um, requirements or goals on projects that help us do that, it's not actually, it's like a net positive. It is a positive. It might not be an immediate, you know, positive. It might, your your project might cost you $1,000 more, right. but in return, you get $3,000 back, right. you know, in the long term. And this is, and I've had conversations like this um, a couple of years ago, there was a, um, not really an effort, but sort of a wow, wow, wow going on about state ferries. And yep. that rather than build them here, we should build them in China. It would be so much cheaper. And it's a question of accounting versus economics. So yeah. accounting, the pure money you're spending, you might have a savings. But the economics, that money is being spent in another country. It's going to pay wages in that country to people who will shop in the stores of that country, who will send their kids to schools in that country. Economics says invest your money here Invest in your community. You might be paying a little bit more, but it's going to go to local people shopping at local stores, buying local goods, kids going to local store, you know, schools, paying local teachers. It's an investment. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And yeah. and it's all about like your 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 timeline, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're looking at what something costs this year versus what's the net effect over a 10-year period or over a 20-year yeah. period, right? Yeah. And it's 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 a completely different conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, everybody wants to be fiscally responsible. So, I, you know, that that's kind of off the table. Like, not being fiscally responsible is not... Not like, an option. Yeah, it's not an option, yeah. right? So it's, you know, being fiscally responsible, we can still choose to invest more in our community than doing what might be cheaper on the surface. Okay. So um, is there a plan? I think you mentioned that the initial plan is to start this with the contracting and then sort of expand it into other areas. Yeah. So we're starting in construction at the top of the year. We're not getting into the goods and services till later um, because we're bringing on some new staff um, and we're going to be getting an advisory committee together. A lot of, you know, procedural <laughs> procedural yeah. stuff that it, you, you have to do things slowly sometimes in government, which is okay if you do it well. Um, and then I would say concurrently, so right now, I'm, I'm not a part of the, the team that's doing it, but our HR um, folks, we do have a disparity study, but on our own internal workforce at the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of that, I'm sure uh, they will be able to do more um, – I would say, I don't know, necessarily aggressive, but, you know, they'll be able to do different types of programming to make sure that our staff is more representative of the community Okay. Um, with whatever discrepancies there may be between who we have now and who's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I'm, I won't even pretend to know what our demographics are, like actual, what the actual statistics are in, for the city, because I, I really don't know. But... You know, if there happen to be discrepancies in particular races or genders or whatever, um, then 
will have the means to be able to do something about it at that time. And do you have a sense of what the timeline is on that on that project, looking at the hiring piece? Um, I believe it's supposed to be the study. It's been going on for a little bit. I think maybe it'll be wrapped up by the middle of next year, but then I wouldn't anticipate concrete things happening until maybe the following year. Yeah. Um, because that's just the way it goes, especially because next year is, you know, everybody's getting ready for the new budget cycle too. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would, you know, if it's 19, I would, maybe the top of 2021 would be realistic for when you'd start to really see things from that happen. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Well, let's talk a little bit about hiring now, just because that's something I'm kind of interested in. Yeah. Um, and I, and so this is my, my premise. Uh, when I, uh, I was a manager for a number of years at a large public agency, and um, it it and it was a you know it was the attorney general's office. So um, for hiring attorneys, everyone who applied had sort of the baseline. I mean, everyone who applied had graduated from law school, was an attorney admitted to practice in Washington. Yeah. So from that point, you could sort of you know you you then at that point customized who do you want. Right. And there are some things you could customize that you th- that seemed like a good thing. But maybe weren't a good thing. So one of the things we had a high focus on, not so much anymore, I don't think, but at the time we had a high focus on those attorneys who had previously demonstrated a commitment to public service, Mm -hmm. which sounds great, right? Yeah, would that mean volunteering? Well, that's the question, (laughs) right? So if you get a law student, it may mean that that law student didn't work during the summers but was doing externships for maybe the ACLU or something else. Great work. But could every student afford to do that? Right. And the students who couldn't afford to do that were not necessarily not good matches for the attorney general's office, but they might be lacking that piece. Yep. Um, Here's another one that sort of happened that I observed. Really high interest in people who had had attained the Eagle Scout status. Mm. How many women do you think that meant? I'd imagine zero. zero. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know how many um, men of color do you know who are Eagle Scouts? I don't I know any. don't know any either. No, the ones I know are all white men. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, that's a real positive, a really good thing, but it might unintentionally really limit the people that you're looking at. Yep. And so that was the thing that got me was and, – and you mentioned the word intentionality, and that's the one I really think is the key, which is – you need to be really thoughtful about what are the criteria you're looking at, what are the criteria you're bringing in to this, because I think our our natural bias and tendency is to hire someone who is very much like us. Yeah. Unless unless you really strongly decide not to do that. Yeah, you have to be very diligent. Yeah. So, and what are your thoughts on that? I mean, how are how are ways that offices, especially public offices, can try to yeah. Avoid that. So I think there's a few ways. Um, one, I would say, is, and this is something that I did as a continuous improvement process at the city. Mm-hmm. Um, one is by using more apprenticeship models. And this would be something that's not so much for things that require some sort of licensing like you would for your for your lawyer yeah. stuff. But, and, and that really means something. So like... 
if you're a manager or if you're owner of a business or whatever, that means you really take a fine look at what are the exact skills you need somebody to have mm -hmm. in that position. And then you write them all down. And then you sit, you you figure out what does it take for somebody to learn how to do this? Mm -hmm. Like in hours and what are those pieces of software or resources you need to do that, map it out, put it all together. Okay, like how long does it take based on what we just calculated for somebody to go from having none of these to all of these. And that's the basic gist of your apprenticeship piece, except, you know, and you'd hire somebody with none of those skills um, or presumably none of those skills and pay them less at the time. And mm -hmm. as they get more of those skills, you pay them more. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's what an apprenticeship is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and when it comes to hiring barriers, because I mean, it's, I feel like we have a systemic issue in society right now mm -hmm. around degrees and certifications that people don't really need to be able I, to do the jobs that they have. Definitely degrees and certifications. Um, and I would say also the experience piece. Yes. Where you don't want to hire someone who needs to be trained, but that means you're only going to hire someone who, you know, has a certain number of years in and maybe a certain type of work background. Right. So I would I would say that's that's one part is looking at, different models of selecting people besides what has become the norm of putting out a solicitation with some with more qualifications than you really need and mm -hmm. then going from there. Um, the other piece I would say, and, and it'll mirror what I said earlier about um, kind of having narrowly prescriptive stuff, is really set out what are the qualifications that you need. Like, like what are they exactly so that you can, one, set a bar, a very well-defined bar of anybody who has all this is good because um, when it comes to, again, this is something that um, was clarified in I-1000, even though it wasn't passed. It, in this respect, it doesn't necessarily matter because um, the there's already federal um, language around this. It wasn't very well defined in the state under I-200, and that's the difference between affirmative action and preferential selection. Right. Right? So in a hypothetical case where you're hiring somebody, um, and I have to say preferential selection is illegal right now under mm -hmm. I-200. It was illegal before I-200. It's illegal federally. Mm -hmm. It's always been illegal. It can, will can probably continue to be illegal. And would that be hiring someone specifically because of their race and gender? Like not, we, we need a woman for this job. <laughs> not necessarily because okay. under certain conditions you might be able to do that and get away with it. Okay. And I'll, and I'll do an example and um, – and, you know, for the listeners, I hope you can kind of imagine this. But when you're hiring and you put out your list of qualifications, um, you have basically two pools of people. You have people who don't meet the qualifications and you have people who do meet them. Mm -hmm. Right. Preferential selection is saying I'm going to take somebody from that pool of people who don't meet the qualifications because of X, Y, Z. OK. And that is illegal. It's, OK. It's Still legal, always was. And that's why I think, um, you know, I was kind of concerned and kind of talked to you a little bit about the messaging around referendum 88 um, mm -hmm. from honestly from both sides was mm -hmm. not super accurate mm -hmm. because a lot of the things that I-1000 did, um, it added clarity, but it didn't change fundamental things. Gotcha. It, it did it for a couple things, but not most stuff. And especially not around the issue of discrimination or anything like that. It, yeah. it, it literally did nothing on, on discrimination. Um, so it was, um, so you had like the two pools, but what you can do, which is what affirmative action is, is you can take 
in the pool of people who are qualified. So you have those two pools again. Some not qualified, some are. In the pool of R, you can take somebody because they're a woman, because they're a person, okay. because of whatever. So like, once you're in the qualified pool, then – other factors other, may come into play. Exactly. And that's exactly what it sounds like you were doing at the law piece. But then again, it, it gets back to the intentionality is you need now need to make sure that those other things that you're adding are also equitable. Yeah. Um, because you can you can make you can take uh, an equitable thing and make it inequitable by introducing other factors. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other piece that's really critical, especially with people who are doing hiring now. So I, I really need to get this piece out is you can have. When you add new things to your solicitation, if let's say, again, it's hiring and you say um, what makes somebody qualified is that they have a driver's license and a high school degree, Mm -hmm. right? That's qualified. But then you throw in a prefer somebody with a college degree. Yeah. What you just did was you created three pools where there were two. Yeah. Right? So you have not qualified, you have qualified but not preferred, and Mm -hmm. then you have qualified and preferred. Right. And now – it would be preferential selection to take a qualified person over a preferred person. Oh, really? Because you just you just made a new distinction. Oh. Right. Yeah. So if 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 this person who was preferred found out that you selected somebody who wasn't who preferred, didn't have that. they would have standing to say I was discriminated against mm-hmm. because I was more qualified. And based on the definitions that you provided on your solicitation, that's true. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is why you have to be very careful about what it is you're putting in your solicitations mm-hmm. because really if you're if you're conscious about it there's not a lot of risk you just need to make sure you know what you're doing mm-hmm. but if you don't know what you're doing or you try to fuzzy it up like it it is it is preferential selection and that's a problem mm-hmm. interesting all right well um before we wrap up um you've given us a lot of information which is really good do you have any thoughts on the college admission piece or shall we just leave that for another day? I think the the college admission piece and, again, not what I work on at the city at all, mm-hmm. um, but just knowing as much as I know about this particular area of law because of, because of my job, um, it's not any different than what I just described about hiring. Yeah. Right? So if you're a school – and I, I think schools – you know, a lot of them are very secretive about how it is yeah. that, that, that they grade or assess students as they come in. And I think that, that leads to some of the issue. Mm-hmm. I think if they if schools were just as upfront and open as, as you are in a job application, like I just said, which is to say we're going to take these tests, your SAT, your ACT, blah, 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 whatever it is. We're going to consider all of these. We're, we're going to grade them using this rubric. And then of the people who are qualified, we will then start doing these other things. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you'd have so many problems mm-hmm. because, again, everybody understands that we're all qualified. Yeah, everybody and, knows how to get into the pool exactly. to and, be considered. And a, a lot of the times when you talk about when people say, you know, we don't want to be discriminated against, we don't want there to be a quota, yada, yada, yada. Um, the idea behind it is that they don't want somebody who's not in the pool to be picked over them. Right. But if there's an understanding that we all made it in. Yeah. And if we're in and you're in, it's not like we're grading a hun- like a 100 score, 99 score, 88 score. It's pass-fail. I think that's the difficulty, actually. I think that it's sort of like – but the the pool of qualified may have uh, A students and B students. But if I'm an A student, I sort of naturally expect that I'm actually going to be picked over a B student. But that right. isn't necessarily how it 
would work. Exactly. And I think that that's where I think schools would probably be better off with more transparency. Yeah. Because it is still a public process. Yeah. So, like, uh, when it comes to the college piece, a lot of people have the same, I think, gut feeling of expectation of transparency that you would ordinarily have of government, mm-hmm. but they don't act that way. Mm-hmm. And so it it allows for the kind of sentiment to build that people don't know what's going on and they feel like they're being discriminated against yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And if, and you know, like even as somebody who would advocate for them to be more private, I'd say even myself, like if I don't know what your rubric is, I can't even say if you're discriminating positively or negatively for me. I don't know. Right. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not concerned about it right this moment for myself. But, right. you know, that would be, I think, beneficial for everybody just to have more um, transparency in that process. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think, you know, the law would support them mm-hmm. if they did it correctly. Yeah. So what should we look for next? Uh, the start with the construction contracts in January? Yeah. So, that's, so with the city, that's what's going to happen next. Um, and, you know, it was one thing we didn't get into, but mm-hmm. I will just throw it out there, is even though Referendum 88 didn't pass, the issue for most cities in Washington, not even cities because it's also ports, it's um, counties, it's you know, it's everything um, that's public. The issue isn't so much in my experience with people I've talked to and like, I, you know, I haven't been everywhere, but mm-hmm. um, it's not that they don't want to do something equitable. It's that they don't know how to pay for it and sometimes aren't interested in trying to figure out how. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that if the governor really is concerned about this and wants to do something would be um, maybe putting aside some money that could help defray the costs. That would be huge. That would be huge. It would be huge if okay. if the state could support public institutions to do these sort of studies to figure out what their disparities are. Um, it it would remove a lot of the costs or a lot of the the barrier. That's interesting. Yeah, That's something to think about. Yeah, and that was like you know with, with what I one thousand was where I one thousand removed that second step mm-hmm. where you can um, under I one thousand if it would have stayed you wouldn't have to do the race and gender neutral solution you can go straight from your study to action um, that wasn't the biggest barrier for people it was the payment it was doing the study in it the first place. it was doing the study in the first place okay and so you know since. Nothing on that front has changed. You know, I would hope that more agencies and places would would take that step. But I honestly don't know if that's going to happen. I, I don't see a reason why anything would be different considering the the, the factors haven't changed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I would expect anything to be different, but I would hope for things to be different. Okay. Well, on that note, let's wrap it up. Thank you so much, Clifford, for coming in and talking. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, this has been really interesting. And we'll who knows? We'll see what happens with the legislative session. Maybe we'll see some action on this. Yeah, that'd be cool. Maybe. Obviously, it's something they're interested in. Be great. All right. Uh, and for those of you listening, if you have ideas or things you're curious about, you can send me an email, truetacoma at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter at truetacoma and listen to our podcasts. Thank you very much. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. The Crossing Division podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, Citizen Tacoma, Founders B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.